Good morning, everybody. It is a joy to be with all of you here this morning. Um, today, I want to focus on the first part of today's gospel, famous passage about the mustard seed, that if we had faith the size of a mustard seed, we'd be able to uproot the tree, uproot mountains and other passages. And this summer, during some of my spiritual reading, I was challenged to look at this passage and its meaning in a new way. Normally, when we read it, it seems that Jesus is saying that it doesn't take a lot of faith to do great things. Even the smallest amount of faith, you can work miracles. But the challenge came in looking at this passage in light of the fact that so often Christ in the Gospels presents us with certain paradoxes. For us to be able to live, we must die. Seed must be planted and die for it to grow again. That which is small is actually quite big. And so keeping this in mind as we look at the mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds, is it quite possible that Jesus is saying that actually when your faith is very small, when it's stripped down to the basic elements, then it's the strongest. Then it's the strongest, and you can move mountains. The exact opposite of the way so many of us have been taught to understand this passage. And it's something that I've come to understand during my years as a priest that so often when you talk to people about faith and what it means to have great faith, they, whether they realize it or not, equate faith with vision. This person has great faith. They believe. Nothing ever shakes their belief. They know that the Lord exists. They, they can work miracles. They've seen angels. They believe and they know the creed. This is what true faith is. But that's not a reality. St. Paul is very clear. Faith is belief in things that you cannot see. But faith means even when things are dark, when things are challenging, when things don't make sense, you are still able to believe and press on. And that faith actually entails struggle. To grow in faith, it means you're going to have to face darkness and questions and wrestle with your faith. But ultimately, for faith to grow, it has to be tested by fire. It has to be tested by different trials. Purified of what is unnecessary. Purified of things that maybe we add on or that we think are important. It has to be stripped of certainty. That we know these things are absolutely true. That we never wrestle with them or never challenged. This, it seems, is what the mustard seed's about. The faith that has been purified through trial. The faith that has faced darkness in order to be so small. So seemingly insignificant. But it's then that faith is able to truly work miracles. This idea came from something I was reading by a Czech priest. His name is Thomas Halleck. And he is the one who presents this idea of reinterpreting or re-understanding the 
passage of the mustard seed. So he sort of sums up his argument here when he says, I am convinced that it is precisely a faith tempered in the fire of crisis and divested of these elements that are too human that will prove more resistant to the constant temptations to simply simplify and vulgarize religion to sell it short. Unquote. Instead of just saying, well, this is our faith, this is our religion, I've got some nice pictures on my walls, I do all these wonderful things, so I have a strong faith, but as soon as crisis comes, it all falls apart. The true faith is one that has been tested by fire. Where does this often come from? Indeed, we can have great trials of faith, big crises that come into our lives, but so often it's all of the little small things that we encounter on a daily basis. Why do I have to endure this suffering? Why is there so much injustice in the world? Why am I lonely and depressed? Why does there seem to be so much confusion in the church? All of these things that bombard us every day, that make us actually put our faith into practice. So often, when we face these things, big or small, we find it easier to sort of insulate ourselves, to not have to face these things, to construct our own idea of what religion is, to hide ourselves in sort of this nostalgia. It's a big trend today because of the crisis of faith that we see in the world, so much darkness and so much sin. Let me go back to 1955, because clearly it was so much better back then. Everything is spelled out. It's all easy. And I'm going to live in this world that no longer exists. And the truth is, it really didn't exist in the church back then. And I've said over and over again to people I've talked to, if things were so solid and wonderful in 1955, why is it that after Vatican II, everything collapsed within two years? It means because it looked really great, but there was something missing. Vatican II didn't cause it. It was the misinterpretation of it, but now we're building up the pieces to have a faith that is much stronger. We don't need to go back to the past. We need to live in the present and face the trials as they come. And so as we sort of move on in today's reflection, I want to present to you a story that most of you probably haven't heard. It's something, as I'll explain, I've been reflecting on the past couple of days. There's a story that happened in Europe in the latter part of the 19th century. Involved millions of people, included the church, the pope, and numerous cardinals. And this is the issue or the debate over Freemasonry. I'm sure you've heard about the Masons and the fact that the church has always taken a very strong stance against Masonry. But there was a lot of writing that was done in the latter part of the 20th century exposing the evil connections between Freemasonry and Satanism and the occult. And one of the leading figures was a woman named Diana Vaughn. She, her story and the books that she had written, had actually told the story of how she used to be involved in the occult aspects of Freemasonry, but finally escaped. And not only did she escape from it, she converted to Catholicism and through the intercession of St. Joan of Arc, who was gaining popularity at the time, came to be able to realize that we need to fight against all of these evils. 
And she became quite a hero. Her books sold millions. And people were really inspired by her story, including, including the saint we celebrated yesterday. And that is St. Therese of Lisieux. She was very inspired by this Diana Vaughan story. Somehow her book and other books had gotten into the Carmel Convent. And because of that, this movement, she, one of millions, very, very touched by the story, was inspired and actually sort of wrote a little play about Joan of Arc. And there were some pictures taken. Many of you may have seen the pictures of Therese dressed as Joan of Arc. This is towards the end of her life in 1897. In fact, taking the picture, one of them, with her sister Celine, and editing it a bit, and sending it to Diana Vaughan, who wrote back and said, thank you so much for this picture, I'm so inspired. But on April 19th of 1897, there was a French journalist named Leo Taxil, T-A-X-I-L, who had a press conference and invited all kinds of people in Paris. And he, during this press conference, was the one who came out and clearly said all of this stuff about Diana Vaughan was a complete hoax. A ruse that he had perpetrated for 12 years to make a fool of the church. It brought in cardinals, it brought in priests, and all this stuff about the devil and Freemasonry was completely false. But what was the worst thing about it? is during this press conference projected on the back of the wall was that picture of St. Therese with her sister. Now, he didn't reference this nun, but he said, basically, I even duped this sister. I made a fool of her. And everyone that was there saw it. It was reported in the news. And somehow, eventually, the news got back to Therese in the Carmel of Lisieux. And she was devastated. She was furious, upset, hurt. In fact, took the letter that this supposed Diana Vaughn had written to her and tore it up. And it was then that really began in April of 1897, she died on September 30th of 1897, her real trial of faith. Can you imagine a sweet, kind, innocent girl, or any of us, taken in by this deceiver and humiliated in front of the whole nation. What must have been going on in her mind, in her own struggles, in her own trials, which I think an argument can be made was a contributing factor to the darkness that she faced at the end of her life. It wasn't like she just said, oh, this is all fantastic, this is all great, I'm just going to offer it up. No, she really struggled with it. And this is an example of what I think I'm trying to make the point of, is that, yes, Therese had a very strong faith, but yet maybe she could look at it and say, I was kind of duped by this guy because of my understanding of who he was and what I thought faith was. And it begins to break down a bit, so she realizes what's the most important. That even Therese, like all of us, had to go a purification of faith so that she could see what's truly important. But she persevered, and I think, gives us the example that we all need to have. Whenever the Lord is purifying our own faith, whenever we face trials, hopefully nothing as significant as being humiliated as she was by this Leo Toxil, 
but in the small ways or the big ways that we face it. How do we persevere in allowing our faith to become smaller, to become more purified? A lot of it is we've just got to wait and endure. There's not much else we really can do because we often can't change those exterior circumstances. But I think Therese gives us the real answer. That no matter how dark things seem, no matter how bad things seem to get, we can still choose to love. We can still choose to love God. We can still choose to love our neighbor and not let our hearts become embittered and angry. That's what Therese did. And it's how we, by facing these trials, facing these struggles, whatever they may be, can, like Therese, persevere to the end as our faith is purified and through love to bear much fruit. Amen.